writers, agents, and publishers, for the first time since the Gutenberg Press, find themselves lost in a maze of mystery as technology alters the shape of the publishing industry. Searching for Answers is a group of writers throwing pop culture, writing, and publishing into a crucible of clarity, passion, and humor. This group is the Right Pack. In this episode, the Right Pack is going to explore what makes story worlds memorable by using Harry Potter as an example. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Right Pack Radio. This is your host, producer, and man of crazy hats, meaning wearing too many hats sometimes, David Allen Lucas, author of Crazy Things, uh, teacher of martial arts and voice actor, and president of Singles Writers Guild, president of Winding Trust Media. God, I said before, wasn't I mentioned about wearing way too many hats? And with me today is my lovely co-host... Hello, my name is Kathleen Kayembe. I write speculative fiction and romance under the pen name Second Vita. The, the romance under that pen name, the other stuff under my name. Um, you can find my stories in Nightmare Magazine and Lightspeed Magazine. And um, uh, The Fairy Tree, my short story, is in the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 12. Um, the uh, triptych, You Will Always Have Family, a triptych was nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award. Congrats. Um, so if you're going to ReaderCon, come say hi, because I will be there. And um, the anthology with my essay, The Butler Effect, called Luminescent Threads, Connections to Octavia E. Butler, um, was nominated for a Hugo this year. Beautiful. And also with us today is... Hello, hello. My name is Chanel H. Chan. I write specula speculative fiction and literary fiction and some strange combination of both when I'm feeling tipsy um i am soon to be an mfa creative writing student at the university of new orleans and with us today is my rival and lovely lo lovely wife hi i'm melanie lucas and uh here's a little secret we're recording two episodes back to back so my uh contest our contest is exactly the same as it was last time <laughs> yes. where is that place though for those who haven't heard that episode uh, he's gaining on me, but I'm still ahead. <laughs> he's definitely gaining. What is the contest? Oh, who can get through the first draft first of uh, uh, our novels? Oh, no, no. So I get news for you. My first draft of my novel probably be somewhere in the ballpark of 138 to 150 some odd thousand words. So are you like Stephen King in that you will have to cut 10% or are you unlike him and you're going to have to add 10%? I'm hoping I have to cut. We'll see. That's, that's work for second draft. First draft is first concentration. Also with us today is the Madame of Murder and Poisons and all things that make you go, oh my God, it's Victorian age. Yes, and I'm sure keeping various... <clears throat> Legal entities on my trail, or what I watch <laughs> online. Anyway, I'm Fedora Amos. I write Victorian whodunits like Jack the Ripper in St. Louis and Mayhem at Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And coming in 2019, have your ticket punched by Frank James. I'm also president of Greater St. Louis Sisters in Crime. And also with us is the Sky. What, what ranks are we making today? Commodore, how's that? That'll work. I'll take it. The Sky Yes, I'm Brad R. Cook. I am the author of many a steampunk tale, 
the latest is Tales of the Gear Blade. You can read the first parts for free online. Uh, but I wanted to announce uh, this month uh, I have released uh, Beyond the Iron Door, which is uh, a collection of steampunk short stories that I have written. It's now in print. You can get them online if you want to. Uh, but do check that out. And then also, if you need a book cover, come and check it out because I am services for writers now. Okay. <laughs> so we were asked um, by one of the fans when I did a poll or this survey of what episodes or what people would like to hear about in some of our episodes. And one of which was they wanted us to explore what makes either a story setting or a story character or a group of characters memorable. What versus those who, don't, who you know, you put down the book and you forgive the next day. Um, so we sat around and I basically force fed everybody to pick Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> oh, the hardship. I know. Mm. I'm so evil this way. Oh. Just call me Voldemort. Anyway, um. <gasps> you said his name. Well, if I'm, if I'm Voldemort, I don't mind saying the name because it's my <laughs> name. I say my own name. <laughs> I don't go, I, who must not be named. Um. I'm part of Dumbledore's army, so I'm more than willing to say Voldemort. There you go. <laughs> I'm taking a cue from the chosen one, so I'll say that too. Okay, cool beans. So, let's talk about that. What um, Harry Potter came from J.K. Rowling, who was struggling as a writer at first, um, just like the rest of us. She writes Harry Potter, gets rejected over 20 times, Brad. Am I correct with that? Yes. Okay. And finally it lands on somebody's desk who gives mercy to it. And Actually, they had... released a little bit of it online That's uh, and, and started some buzz that way and then dropped it on Scholastic, who had already... Or no, it was the only one who hadn't already turned it down. Okay. It is the only one breaking bank with that. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Like, ooh, and now... Yeah, go Scholastic. <laughs> it, it turned into this book series, which... As the books were being written, somewhere during the series, it suddenly started becoming films as well. And now it's become park. part of Disney theme parks. So let's just can we just officially call it the Brass Ring? Because you know, in terms no, of like our industry, it, it is literally the thing we all want to obtain because we all want a theme park. You know, I'm not so no, sure no, about I that. I don't necessarily need the Iron Chronicles theme park. We're good there. Brad, you made enough money to retire on. Brad, I'm that not going to call ring. it the brass ring. I am going to call it the ring that, that rules them all. <laughs> sort of a little token. The one ring to rule them all. Yes. And in the darkness behind me. Yes. <laughs> so, sorry to jump jump worlds there, but what, seriously, what makes Harry Potter, the world, the characters, all that, so memorable? Go ahead, Kathleen, jump first, and then Chanel, and then Brad. Uh, I, I would say it's a combination that we should get into the individual bits of over the course of the episode. It's a combination of the characters, the setting, the lore, the magic system, and the plot lines. Okay, that covers it all. Let's go home now. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, just put all that. In um, we're good. Yeah. What about those Butter beers things? on me. Go ahead. <laughs> so, okay, let's go with that. What was your first one? Yeah, characters. Characters. What what makes the characters so memorable? I mean, come on. This was originally written as a kid's book. 
be honest. And children's literature, if I remember right, YA, or children, what grade she aimed for. No, this was middle grade when it started out. Thank you. Middle grade when it started out was struggling, if I understood, if I remember my story. It didn't exist. Oh, even better. Yeah, no. So the, 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 the I mean, of course, middle grade has always existed. That that is not a non thing. But what did That's not good. really exist was the the thought of a really intelligently written book that uh, didn't talk down to kids, uh, but starred kids, and 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 the notion of that um, uh-huh. was one of the reasons why everyone turned it down. And there wasn't books like this. There was no Harry Potter before there was Harry Potter. You had Nancy Drews and you had your series, a few of those things, but they come nowhere near to what the phenomenon of Harry Potter is, which is basically taking an adult book and writing it like the way you would write an adult book and writing it for kids. And that's something else I was going to say. It, the appeal to the adults is beyond compare. You and then you. So one of the things that I think um, J.K. Rowling did a fantastic job of with regard to her characters is that you, you had your baseline group that was that, that was reading the book as it was intended for them when it came out. And as the target audience grew, so the characters also grew. It's like, so you're maturing on these same levels. You're having these same sorts of conversations uh, um, with your friends as these characters in this book are having these conversations. So, like, suddenly... Uh, Harry is looking at girls and you're like, oh yeah, I guess she is kind of hot. Oh yeah, I just had this conversation in school, PE, two days ago. So it, it's this really fantastic moment of the character echoing the audience and like watching it blossom from there. You're dovetailing and then over to Fedora after you, Kathleen. Um, so, you so it sounds like kind of what you're yeah. saying was that like she wrote books that were accurate to the age that Harry Potter was at the time. Yes, absolutely. Like I, I was no longer in high school, I believe, when I read, well, I might have been, whatever. When book five came out, five is my least favorite book because Harry is accurate. Like, and it pains me. He <laughs> speaks in caps lock. He is angry. He thinks he has done everything and other people have not supported him. Like, he's a super angry child. And I'm like, this is too real for me. Like, I know you. <laughs> I know you. I did not like being you. I don't want to be you again. This is too much. I have to. So it's my least favorite book. Wait, but it's wait, entirely accurate. Sorry, remind me. Which one is number five? I know him by titles. I never Order did of count. Phoenix. Yeah, Order, Order of Phoenix. Phoenix. He, yeah, like, he was Harry, an angry boy. Like, and he grows from that book to the next book. I love watching the growth of his character. But like, he was definitely in that teenage phase in that book that that people think teenagers are monsters for, and you grow out of it. But I love that she had it in there. Like, you're not generally very sympathetic when you're going through that sort of thing. But like, because I knew him growing up, I still liked him, and I hoped he grew out of it. And then he he did. And I got to see him grow up, and that was wonderful for me as a reader. Fedora and then Brad? Go back to the beginning. Harry Potter, I think, is a wonderfully developed character by Rowling because he is so downtrodden, and yet he has he's an orphan who has no family, and that gives you a lot of potential for backstory of some kind or another. And the family that he's stuck with is so oppressive and so ridiculous that we can't but despise them, even while we laugh at them. And so Harry is a very pleasant character who is understandable, he's relatable, 
And uh, we definitely want to, something good to happen to him. And that's a great place to start with a character. Okay, uh, Kathleen, you're dovetailing. I've still got Brad after you, though. Um, Fedora, I'm glad you said those things about him because those are part of what make him so relatable and make me as a reader want to, you know, be like him and identify with him. Like, who hasn't gone through a situation where you feel like people are being horrible to you for no reason that you have earned? Like, Harry begins as, as basically Cinderella, and then he finds out that, like, he's actually the chosen one. Like, who doesn't want someone to come through their, come into their life and be like, actually, you're a wizard. You are not just any wizard, either. You're the bestest ever kind of wizard, and we love you, and everyone here actually loves you and sees you and knows you who you are, and we want you back. Like, that, that family that was mean to you or those people that didn't appreciate you, those are not your life. We are your life. Like, who doesn't want that? Like... Oh my gosh. And, and then it turns out there are some problems. <laughs> oh my gosh. Brad and Chanel? Yeah, so I, I completely agree uh, that Harry is a wonderfully developed character, and I would say that most of, especially the three of them, are, are beautifully developed characters. But the thing that I love about uh, what JK does when she writes, and it's something I try and do, but it's really something that you should focus on as, a, as an author to really kind of enrich your world. And that is every little thing has more detail to it than it needed. I.e. candy. It's not just a regular jelly bean that they're popping in some scene because they're eating sweets and they're kids. The jelly bean has weird tastes to it. You know, and that's then bringing in the, the, the elements of magic and the way that she weaves magic into her world uh, so that almost any normal scene where you would have two people sitting on a couch talking about, or, you know, sitting in a classroom talking about, you know, whatever, suddenly now has more depth to it because, you know, he cracks open a, a thing that has a magic chocolate frog uh, and jumps out, you know, or it's, you know, the, the actual classes themselves and the way that it goes. Every little thing has something more to it, uh, you know. Think of Gringotts, the uh, the bank. It's not just a bank where you walk in. You then have to get onto a roller coaster that takes you to your vault. You know, it's it's those little touches that just expand on the world so much and then kind of add in so much creativity. And that, I think, is what really blew us all away, is that everywhere you turn in the Potterverse, there is something new to stare at that you either didn't know before or has more detail and depth than you could ever imagine. And now that it's grown into this huge universe, I mean, where we have questions that JK wrote the books and now, oh my God, did she subconsciously add that in there that maybe Neville was the chosen one and not Harry? Oh my goodness. You know, that kind of stuff is just so awesome. And it really comes from those levels of detail that you add into your books. Kathleen and then Chanel. Um, so I did not notice this myself. Um, I was listening to an episode of Writing Excuses, the podcast, and I believe it was Mary Robinette Kowal that said something that Rowling did um, in describing characters is she used like description keywords for, for different characters. So Snape is kind of oily, like black hair and like, you know, his nose is a little hooked. And like Malfoy is, is kind of rat-like in his appearance, like just certain keywords so that if she just if she named the keyword, like I would know the character. Like if you say frizzy hair, you're it's Hermione. Yeah. Like there there's certain like keywords, key descriptions that each character has, and she does that for each of the characters. 
So, like, it, it's kind of a, a written shorthand for them. She doesn't have to tell you who they are. Like, and if Harry sees somebody and he, he you know, just describes what he sees, he doesn't have to say the character name. You know who it is he's seeing. So, what I'm getting at, because this conversation's kind of going all over, but I think the theme emerging is there's a lot of memorable details. So, one of the common takeaway themes in at least Harry Potter that works as a world is a lot of really memorable details. Now, more broadly, is that something that a universe needs to work? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to go with a yes on that as well. I mean, think about... Think, and I've still got you coming up, Chanel. And we've got you. Think about any of the other famous story worlds that are out there and try to ignore the ones that even break their own canon and novels and so forth, like Star Trek, Star Wars... Uh, just throwing a few out there. Dune. I mean, okay, so you got a worm going through the sand. What does that worm look like? And it's huge, by the way. The description of that thing being a giant worm with a size, and I forget exact length, is something. The way the Fremen are described. And by the way, if you haven't read Dune, please go out there and do it. The blue on blue eyes and so forth. There's something about that description that allows it to magnify itself. Go for it. So one of the things, um, in terms of the use of description and detail in Harry Potter, is that there are... Because... Okay, let me get this out of the way first. Mm -hmm. Harry Potter, while being a fantastic... Um, speculative children's or middle grade set of novels, middle grade series, functions as a mystery. Functions as mysteries. Um, so the thing, you're always trying to figure out what happened next. Okay, how does this relate to this? How does this relate to that? In these books, the amount of detail that she gives you both, both serves as world building and as dropping clues. And you can never exactly tell what what is just world building and what actually is a pertinent detail that's going to unravel the mystery later on and i think that's one of the reasons that it the world comes across as being so wonderful wonderfully immersive is that you have to pay attention to all the details in order for you to be able to catch up with the mystery itself um fedora if you wouldn't mind like just breaking down some of the we, we had this conversation a while ago about, like, what makes a good mystery, and I don't remember all the things, but, like, one of the things was you have to put out all the clues so that the reader can figure it out. Like, how do you structure a good mystery? Like, yeah. Well, what you're talking about there is to drop in various clues, and at the same time, you can drop in red herrings. Either way... What you're supposed to do is what Dorothy L. Sayers talked about, which is playing fair with your reader, making sure that even if it's something that you would expect them not to remember, since it's something you put in the very first chapter, that it's there, and you're playing fair with them. Um, can you uh, just break down what a red herring is? A red herring is a false clue. Oh. And a lot of times, for example, uh, mystery writers will deliberately set up a course in which a person who is not the big villain is presumed to be the villain for perhaps a third of the book or longer. And then 
the twist near the end shows you who the real villain is. Uh, you reminded me of a red herring in the first Harry Potter book. Um, Harry is uh, playing Seeker during a giant game of Quidditch. Mm-hmm. And uh, his broom starts malfunctioning. Like, and Hermione figures out, I think it's Hermione figures out that like his broom is being spelled. Mm-hmm. And she uses her binoculars to see who could be doing this. And she sees Snape muttering to himself. And she assumes he's the culprit. So uh, she and Ron maybe try and intervene. Yeah. And like... Yeah. Uh, when they like mess with Snape, it stops. Oh, yeah, but, you don't, on fire. but you don't realize, like, even though Rowling has said Professor Quirrell is in there, spoiler alert, you don't realize until the bad guy is revealed that when they were doing that to Snape, they bumped him, and that's what actually stopped the spell that he was casting. So, like, all the clues were there. It just, you don't realize until later. Which are the real ones? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were actually there were real clues, but they were misinterpreted, and we were taken around at the major. Which is why what a red herring allows you to do. And that's something that I also loved about the Harry Potter books. Um, You're seeing things from one character's perspective, so you, as a reader, may recognize, oh, well, the adults in this case are correct, or oh, like this is actually what's going on, but because. Harry has a specific point of view. He will not always figure out the right information from the clues. Like, and, ugh, sorry, Draco Malfoy, I'll stop. <laughs> well, I was going to say, and then, I, by the way, those who are listening to this, since we're reviewing this as, as writers, please, no, we're throwing out spoiler alerts, so I'm going to throw out one big one now. Snape, throughout the entire series, is one big red herring. Mm-hmm. You, you, you assume he's a bad guy, and he well, he acts like a bad guy often enough, and but it turns out he's really a double agent, or a triple agent, depending on how you define it. Yeah, triple agent. <laughs> so, and I don't want to go into full detail with him, but it's amazing what she does with him. So I've got Brad, Fedora, then Melanie. Oh no, I. Oh, okay, Brad and Fedora then, Brad. Yeah, I was just going to throw out that one of the things that I love about what J.K. does with uh, Harry is the way that she would progress not only the story through each book. So, okay, so each book is its own self-contained, you know, story. Uh, you know, something having to do. But then you have the greater story that's going through all seven books? Seven, right? No. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Seven. Uh, and those, you know, like that ability to, in a series is important because not only then is each adventure uh, exciting and new and fresh and contained within itself, uh, but then, you know, the overall, like, I want to keep reading because I want to find out what's going to happen in this overall arcing story that is taking this entirety of, you know, a better part of a, you know, decade and a half or so, uh, to tell. And that's, that's kind of cool. And that's something that I think is, uh, important to do in any, uh, you know, long running series that you're going to try and run. That's a decade. They're a decade long. Fedora, and then um, back to Kathleen. I want to offer a word about the names that she uses. Nobody uh, after Dickens, I think, did its great a job of using names in a way that suggests what they are than she did. I'll take just two as examples. One is Harry Potter. What is a potter? A potter makes things out of clay, builds things, makes things that are useful and important. And that's exactly what Harry does. 
And then look at Draco Malfoy. <laughs> Draco, dragon, and Mal, which means evil. And of course, he is our evil little blonde guy. So I love what she does with names, including the sounds. Snape. I mean, does that sound like anybody who could be any good? Uh, and it takes him a lot of, a lot of books to prove that he is. And Tom Riddle's name. Yeah. Tom Riddle. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Tom Riddle's name being being an anagram, yeah. Yeah. Tom Mar- Mar- Marvel Riddle. I have always wanted to know what she came up with first. Voldemort or Tom Riddle? That's a good question. And that will always be the riddle until we learn otherwise. But I'm Stop. I couldn't resist. Please save the world from world from me, um, Kathleen. Take it away. Oh, look. A biracial girl's a chosen one now. <gasps> anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, something that I, I... I'm still on characters. So something that I like about his characters that you can appreciate as a reader that Harry doesn't appreciate as a point of view character is the nuance people have. Um, one of my favorite characters is Draco Malfoy. Rowling does not understand why people love this person. Like, and I'm pretty sure he was supposed to be the Dudley of the wizard world, but there you go. <laughs> like, he is portrayed as a villain, like a much lower class than what Harry's really dealing with the whole time. So like, he's a school bully. He's whatever. Who cares mm-hmm. about him? But like, when it comes time to do the things that the beliefs he is spouting about, you know, racial purity, when the time comes to do something, like to, to basically put his money where his mouth has been, he does not want to take those steps. He does not want to murder the headmaster. He he's he just does not identify Harry Potter when identifying him would get him killed. When he's supposed to let in dark wizards to the school, he cries about it for a year before he actually does it. Like, and this is just, uh, this is a bully character. Like, with Dudley, he's terrorizing Harry his whole life, completely buying what his parents are saying. And then they have a run with a Dementor and he realizes that Harry has, is actually a good person and like, did something terrifying to save him. Like, he knows that Harry has his back and saved his life and he stopped being horrible to him. He, like, avoids him like plague and leaves him, like, food and tea outside his door. Takes and, a long time for Harry to notice. <laughs> and if he completely misinterprets it, he thinks, like, they're they're doing something mean to him, like, playing a prank on him when really Dudley's trying to be nice. Like, those are character stories. Like, everybody has a well-rounded character, and you don't see it all through Harry, but you see hints of it, and I love that. Okay, I've got two, I've got two dovetails, Chanel and then Brad. So I just wanted to um, add on to that, that that's one of the things that she does well for all of her characters. Every character there has qualities that you can either love them for or hate them for. And either way it goes, you're going to fall into one camp or another. There's not very many characters in the story that you just kind of feel eh about. Either they're the good guy or they're the bad guy. Mm-hmm. There's not very much gray area unless she's doing it on purpose which yeah but um for example every dark arts teacher (laughs) right (laughs) like hermione like hermione being like she's the smartest one yes but she's also a fierce know-it-all and everyone knows that one person you're just like you just shut up just shut it i know you know the answer just put your hand down like everybody knows that person so it's like you love her for it but also you're like i understand why they're kind of poking fun at her and every character seems to have that sort of that sort of very tangible quality of i like them but i hate them but i like them mm-hmm. yep. uh brad and then melanie 
Yeah, real quick, just to tack on to the uh, what Kathleen's uh, about Harry's bubble life. Uh, I love the Holcrux theory. And uh, JK herself has actually come out and said it's really intriguing and she totally digs it too. Uh, but it is that if Harry is a Holcrux, then the Dursleys were being uh, negatively affected by him, which would be why they would treat him so horribly all the time and why uh, they'd be so mean to him at any given moment. Uh, it's not written that way. She did not write it that way. But it is so beautiful that uh, she's even acknowledged that it might be true. <laughs> no? Um, this is... We've talked a lot about what works in Harry Potter, but getting back to the craft of writing. Uh, so Harry Potter characters are all well-rounded over the course of many, many books. So how does she do that? So Harry, I think, is pretty well-developed right from the beginning. I mean, she focuses him a lot in the first book, but how does she develop all of these characters? I know, especially for some of the uh, secondary characters, like the Dursleys, just especially in the first book. By the end of the series, I agree that they're better rounded, but they're pretty static in that first book. So, would please... Well, I think part of part of why they're static in the first book is that like when you're writing a, a story you have to choose what to focus on mm -hmm. and especially for the first book in what may or may not be turned into a series like you want to have the core characters so in this case harry potter and then the the trio his ron and hermione who are the next two um you want to have them well established and you want to have the mad like the the wizarding world firmly established and like interesting to people and then you want to have the plot going on that is firmly established and like interesting side characters and stuff but they have to remain yeah, on the so side. Yeah, so priority wise, yes, what would you so do first basically? For so side if you're, characters? If you're building, if you're writing your first book and establishing the world, you can't do everything at once. So you're writing your first book, you can't do everything in your first book. What do you do in your first book? You show enough of the world that the reader can become immersed and wants to know more. You establish your protagonist, and if they have, like, two sidekicks and are a trio and function that way, then you establish them, but not to the extent that you establish your main character. You make sure the plot is engaging, you make sure that there is potential for more, like, that for, for more books and stuff, but you focus on telling the best possible single story you can so that people want to read more. And you mentioned that like, the Dursleys are pretty static in the first book. I think that was a choice she made. Mm -hmm. And, like, you can develop characters like the Dursleys, but, like, you don't want them to be the focus. The focus is, of the series is Harry and the Wizarding World and his impact on the Wizarding World, and it's on him. So, like, it takes seven books to, to show a growing relationship and to establish those characters firmly. And I, yeah, I think you have to choose what to focus on, and she was smart in how she did that. Fedora, Brash, no. I think she's doing a lot of social commentary, too. You're talking a lot about the Dursleys, and I think that they represent a class. They are uh, climbers, shall we say. They are trying to uh, get business, and it's very important to have the right kind of cake and, <laughs> and to entertain important people, and I think she is poking fun at that. Along with that, let's take a, a crack at... Uh, biracial prejudice. After all, Hermione is a mudblood, and that is another thing which uh, 
brings out a separate kind of entity that she is, I think, satirizing in British society especially, but in worldwide society too. Brad? Yeah, so I think part of the beauty is that uh, Kathleen is right and Fedora is right and uh, J.K. Kiss keeps going and that's the beauty of what she's, of how she's doing this. And yes, she, uh, Harry is eh, pretty well flushed out in the first book. You, you get to know who Harry is at that particular moment um, and Hermione in them. But to be perfectly honest, I would argue in the first book, it's Hermione's book because she rocks and Harry's an idiot. <laughs> but this um, true. what I was going to say, though, is that, and this is where I think her real genius comes in, is that she lets these characters grow. So Harry does not stay a 10-year-old boy because no one does. So as he experiences his first year at school, he comes back the next year and he's grown from it. And he comes back the next year and he grows more. And in that, and beautifully she does it by encapsulating each year. So we get to see that level of growth. And it's, an, it's a time in our lives where growth is so compacted that so much happens in such a little bit of time that that is a really great way to then expand a character out. Whereas an adult, you know, might take forever to change. Uh, you know, younger, you know, characters are not necessarily going to be that way. So by each year, adding in more and more and more and more to the central characters and to Harry and Hermione and Ron, you know, you are then providing the depth that where at the end of these books, uh, not only do they feel like such well-rounded characters, but they are so ingrained that they feel like real people. I would guarantee you that in our leader, in our uh, listenership right now are people who feel like they know everyone in that class just as if they had gone to that same school because it's that level of detail and you grew up with them and you were moving with them and, in doing so, you build up this uh, readership link that I think is almost unmatched with anything that Harry Potter. Okay, Chanel and Kathleen. Um, just thinking about it in terms of the Dursleys, one of the things that J.K. Rowling did really well is that you have to know when to move things forward and when to leave things alone. And part of the thing that makes the difference between the Muggle world and the Wizarding world so jarring is because... Harry Potter Lee has these dismal circumstances. He goes off and he has this whirlwind adventure and he comes back and everything's exactly the same, but he's not. Like, and that, that makes it that all that much more profound. The fact that he has changed, but they haven't. So like the, in that way, their progress almost has to be incremental because otherwise it's just going to be another change in a story of upheaval that's already that's gonna I think it would have tipped the scales too much mm -hmm. for them to have a sort of like have the same scale of arc as the other characters do from book to book that's something a lot of adults forget is that to a kid they're stuck at home and home doesn't change and that's that's locked in like your mom and your dad and your sisters and your brothers or whoever was in your house to a kid that's all locked in right there and it doesn't change year to year to year to year so it feels very much like that I was going to say, too, this is something where J.K. Rowling, I'm coming right over to Kathleen next, I'm just jumping in line real fast. J.K. Rowling plays with a little different twist on the hero's journey. If you think about most hero's journey, at the end, you usually have some type of celebration that they're back. Think the first movie of Star Wars. Not, not Tom Phantom Menace, I'm talking about New Hope. In the end, here we've got a medal ceremony. 
in the end of Harry Potter, okay, yes, they did celebrate at the um, Great Hall, but when he returns, what's he back into? Oh, God, here I am, back in this muggle cage. Go for it. Um, I was going to mention that, like, in terms of series writing, um, Rowling showed you the Wizarding World as an 11-year-old would see it. And, like, each, like, as Harry gets older, as each book progresses, he, he sees a new part of the Wizarding World that he hadn't seen before. And generally it's good, but then there's something dark about it. Like, right. um, and, like, in book two, he's so happy to be back at school, but then there's, there's something that's petrifying people. Like, every year it's something, and he doesn't, he doesn't always assume that it's Voldemort first, but, like, readers, like, became, like, that became the thing. Like, Voldemort's going to do something, and Harry's going to be the only one that stops him. And none of the adults are going to listen, except, you know, the ones at Hogwarts. Right. And it was probably the dark arts teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the thing is, like, by, by book four, you know that's the pattern. But then book four yeah. has, is Lupin, right? So, like, she turns the pattern on its head. Like... Oh, was book five? She writes that series so brilliantly. It's one of the things I really love about it. Hmm? Was book three? No, well, you're right. Forgive me. So, um, it's either book four or five that Lupin is defensive against the dark arts. But by that mm -hmm. point, the pattern has been established. The DADA teacher is not good news. Specifically not for Harry, anyway. Um, so she she recognizes that she has patterns set up, and then she she breaks them. She twists your expectations, so everything stays feeling new. Brett? Yeah, so one of the things that I love that uh, JK does is that she, um, oh god, I had a 12 point and I totally just lost it from my brain. Oh, yeah, okay. So the notion that in the beginning, everything that she introduces you to in the Wizarding World, as Kathleen was talking about, is fun and exciting, like Diagon Alley and, you know, like all of these kind of cool things that are fun and just, you know, wondrous. And as the stories progress, those just keep getting darker and darker and darker reveals. And yes, in the Order of the Phoenix, when you when you meet the Order of the Phoenix and you go to the house and you know all of the like cool stuff, you see Sirius Black's line, you know, like the famous line and all that kind of very cool. It's super dark, um, you know, and it's it's not it's not the fun and exciting like almost Candyland appeal of the first one that I I love. I love the the, the way they got darker as they progressed. It was a very cool thing. Well, I think it's, like, just recognizing myself, like, my view of the world has gotten darker the older I've gotten. Because when you're a child, the hope is that your parents took care of you and sheltered you from a lot of dark things. And as you get older, you encounter more and more of the quote-unquote real world mm -hmm. to the point where you're off on your own. And here he starts having been sheltered from the wizarding world, <laughs> not really sheltered by, you know, good standards, but, like, sheltered caged, you might say, trapped in a cupboard under the stairs, you might also say quite accurately. So like when when he sees the Wizarding World, he has the kind of experience that like most kids you hope have of the world where everything is bright and shiny and new. And like the people, the adults who have surrounded him at that point are like, this is the chosen one. Like we've been watching over you your whole life. Like everything is going to be wonderful in this world. And then, then things start changing. Like then then the complexity starts coming in. And the older Harry gets, the more complexity shows up. 
Well, certainly, you have to have conflict in order to have stories. And the more stories, the more conflict you're going to have to have. That's kind of a natural thing. But what I wanted to talk about for a moment is something that I think that uh, she does that's most brilliant. And that is to update and refocus and modernize ideas that were in British literature for the last thousands of years. Take, for example, the ghost which appears in a lot of life and news stories and so on. She makes it Moaning Myrtle, who is a fun ghost in a toilet. I mean, for goodness sake, how very clever that is. Or the character that John Cleese plays. Oh, Headless Nick. Nearly Headless Nick. Nearly Headless Nick. Nearly Headless Nick. Nearly Headless Nick. Okay, whatever it is. He is, it seems to me, kind of a direct descendant of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where the Green Knight cuts off his own head and carries it around. All of these things, I think, are absolutely wonderful, and it, it gets it. An audience that is already prepped for these things to happen and for them to be wonderfully twisted into the modern era. Speaking of Moni Myrtle and increasing the complexity as stories go on, um... The Harry Potter stories are mysteries, and there's the individual book mysteries, and there's also the series arc mystery of how you defeat Voldemort, mm -hmm. because each of these books is basically like one tiny battle in a war that goes on for Harry's entire high school career, and Moaning Myrtle. You meet her as, you know, the ghost that moans in the girls, whatever, third floor bathroom, something like. Like, she's just a quirky ghost. Like, she's kind of annoying. Nobody really likes using that bathroom because she's just moaning in there all the time and complaining. Then so nearly moaning Myrtle. Book two, you find out why she's in that bathroom. And it ties into the mystery. Like, so these things that you can see in one book or that you see earlier on in one book tie into the larger uh, lore of the series. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Like, everything has a place in the series, um, whether you realize it or not at the time. Um... The, the commenter did recognize that this could go into a gushing session. So I, I would like to bring out one thing that I think, that I really wish Rowling hadn't done, even though I, I get why she would. It's about attraction and relationships. Oh boy. Um, so has, has anyone else noticed that like, if people are going to be in love, it happens during their high school career, and then, like, it's that person for life. Like, Snake got a crush on one person, and he died. Like, <laughs> it took him however many years. It took him an entire new generation. But, like, he's fascinated with that woman's child and can't stand the child, but also is going to die to protect that child if he has to. Like, he never saw anybody else and was like, actually, yeah. I understand that she moved on and that we weren't a thing ever, and I'm going to, to move on with my own life and have somebody that I care about and love. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He pines and is bitter for the rest of his life. And like, everybody in those books, they meet someone in high school, and that's who they're with for life. Like, Dumbledore meets Grindelwald in high school, and that's who he has for life. He never takes up with anyone else. He never clearly wants anyone else. He just wants that one guy who he put in prison because he ended up being evil and makes no other, like, has no other romantic meanings his whole life. Also, the Marauders generation, all dead. Like, I understand that, um, that maybe it would be difficult to live in a world where people from that generation were still alive to tell you what happened. All dead. 
like at the end of a uh, book seven where it's just you know recapping who died off screen all dead i was like wow at least oh mm. oh she even got him off screen i was and also i'm not a fan of the epilogue but apparently she's not either anymore so yeah she, she was getting closure i mean no, what, we might have wanted to have more books, but she didn't, I would say. And she was writing her closure, let's, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, the epilogue felt like something she wrote for her, not because fans wanted to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it did not agree with most fans', the vocal fans' view of what would have happened at the end. So, like, okay, I'm sorry. Um, Harry Potter marries Ginny Weasley. Both of them have family histories. Both of them have people that mm-hmm. are important to them. But all of their children that she carried in her womb for nine months only have names that are important to him. Well, yes, like, but I always figured that was because she has so many siblings. Her their other her brothers and sisters already took up all the other family names. She also has people that are important to her that are not in her family, though. That's a point. Like I was like, I'm sorry. Did did Harry marry a woman who did not name their children at all? Like she had no opinions. I, what? Like. Jenny Weasley had no opinions, really? Like, it just baffled me. I'm sorry. Like, super baffled me. And also, like, I'm guessing this is because of the movies, but, like, the Malfoys in the movies have fabulous hair. Fabulous hair. So Malfoy, Draco Malfoy, shows up on platform nine and three quarters balding. And I'm like, really? (laughs) Really? I'm sorry, no. He has Jason Isaac's hair from the first movie. They are gorgeous and luscious and long. He is not balding. He cannot. So, like, I have personal reasons for disliking the epilogue, um, those being two of them. Okay, Brad, you selected a follow-up behind this. Good luck. Hey, actually, like, I can keep this going. So, uh, we need to talk about Jenny Weasley taking out all of Harry's girlfriends along the way. Because, suspiciously, there's a little, you know... Jump online, go read, Jenny Weasley taking out Harry Potter's girlfriend, so she's the last one. Oh. It's a good read. And in which case, then, maybe she felt guilty and was like, okay, Harry, you can name them, because I took out all your girlfriends. Can we please So, yes. Uh, No, and this is why I love it, because there's so many theories and, like, funness that you can just have with Harry. I love it. Anyway, um, uh, what I wanted to throw out, though, is that one of the things that I love, and this kind of goes back to what Fedora was talking about, is the way that uh, J.K. weaves in just enough real world so it's all believable. That, you know, by bringing up things like the Arthurian Knights or bringing up Nicholas from Mal and, you know, the alchemy and all that kind of stuff, or bringing in, you know, the, the, the touches of the muggle world, like the Weasleys have no idea what this muggle stuff is all about. You know, that kind of stuff really tied it into grounding it into a world we could know. And then for those of us who are Tolkien files or, you know, Arthurian, uh, you know, junkies, uh, we get to read through all of this and pick out little things and go, hey, maybe, you know, Nick is an homage to, uh, you know, Gwaine and the Green Knight. I think you were trying to say something to Brad on that. Oh, it was going back to the relationships. Like, Jenny has one crush her entire high school career. It is Harry Potter. One crush. But Harry actually broke tradition. He had a crush on Cho Chang and then married Jenny anyway. Like, Mm -hmm. he he had a monster inside of him. (laughs) (laughs) But you see, that doesn't work. Uh, In most of the cases, he should have pined for her, according to the... Well, I'm guessing the reason he didn't pine is that Cho betrayed him and the Dumbledore army. Like... 
yeah. under Verata serum. So basically she was compelled to and had no option not to, but still, he felt betrayed for a while. I'm guessing that's where that went. Also, he's a Which chosen one, so yeah, he has more choices. That, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, Hermione and Ron have a thing, and then Hermione dates someone else, but like, it's clear she still has a Ron thing, and Ron kisses other people, and it's clear he still has a Hermione thing. So I mean, everyone else, Harry's the only one that got a second chance at he got romance. But he still did it before high school ended. And all I'm going to say is, right there defines why I would not want to be in the Harry Potter universe. Because I'm thinking back to high school. Nope. Glad I did. I'm sorry, but, and I know that I am uh, calling out with a lot of fanboys here, but there is so much tension between Harry and Hermione. Yeah. Yeah, The whole thing. Mm -hmm. That when they were running around, just alone, uh, you know, looking, or running away from the, uh, the Snatchers, was it, or something like that? That they totally hooked up, and that is fan canon. <laughs> so all all I'm going to say is what it was, is Hermione, reali- Hermione, yeah, Hermione realized that Jeannie was going to get up. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> there are some, I'm like, Hermione did deserve better. Like, there, she, there are some did. relationship choices, but I think most of them were romantic relationship choices that I disagreed with with Rowling. Yes. Um, something that she does not do well in the Harry Potter series, and I'm not sure if this has changed with other books, is write romance in a way that feels like romance. So like when Harry realizes he has a crush on Jenny because he sees her with other dudes, it's like this monster roars up inside of him. And I'm like, what? Like, is this indigestion? Like, what? I don't understand. (laughs) And it took me a while to figure out that no, he has a crush and he does not know how to process it. Oh, oh, that's what the monster was. Like, because it keeps popping up. Like, you need to get that checked. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who writes middle grade, it is incredibly awkward and weird to try and weave in the, like, romance. The romance. Or the feelings. Or any of that kind of stuff. So I can see where JK might shallow out on some of that. Uh, I would agree with right. that. That uh, it, it will slow things down in a mystery or in an action adventure, mm-hmm. the romance is going to slow things down. And you've probably had the same notion when you saw a movie and all of a sudden the uh, protagonist and the new and the girl, the new yeah. girl, stop and kiss right in the Wonder middle Woman. of a battle, you know. Wonder Woman. They're, yeah. I'm not, crazy. Ta- I'm not talking about shoehorn romances and things that are not believable, Finn and Rose. Um, but I am <laughs> talking about, um, like, just her use of description for... His crush. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't know yeah. what emotion he was feeling. I couldn't identify from the word monster what was going on with him. Seems and like that the, there, were, there, were, there was an opportunity to use tropes there that would have been able more to more clearly portray what she was trying to get at that she did not use. And that left you feeling kind of flat. Yeah, like, I just... I. In Harry Potter books, like you, I know what's going on with Harry. If nothing, go, if nothing else is true, I know where Harry is emotionally. And like suddenly, I didn't know where he was emotionally, and I was like, "Is this okay? I think this is jealousy." But like, I think, like it was odd. Well, see, here, here's where I was a little different. I hooked onto that as as, my, as jealousy because I've always heard the green-eyed monster. Mm. And oh, it, and it he just is flipped. a green-eyed monster when he feels that way. Oh, <laughs> except in the movies. Yeah. Except in the movies, right? Yeah, I was along those lines from the very first book, or maybe it was from book two. I always expected the last girlfriend to be Jeannie Weasley because Harry wants the Weasley's family. Mm-hmm. Mm. He wants the in-laws. 
Genie is his. <laughs> he he, gets, he wants the brother and sister in laws, and Genie's his way in to having the loving family he never had growing up. So, in other words, Harry Potter not only was oh, the chosen one, the he was Machiavellian in his processing. No, it's unconscious. Uh, an unconscious mind here. Uh, yes. He was part Voldemort for most of his life. Yeah. Yes. Oh, there was exactly. something that I do love that Brad, you keep mentioning is like fan theories. And something that I like about the Harry Potter verse is that you can have plenty of fan theories and they're, they work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there was a, there was a theory about each of the books, like when the first ones were out, but not the latest ones being like Harry kind of learning what he has to learn from each of the particular houses. And that was fascinating. So let's just go out on a, um, and look at this from like a large scale here because JK Rowling and her fan interaction has been genius in the fact that she keeps perpetuating the fan theories. She'll be like, oh, that one has credence. That one, oh, that's interesting. Yep, that totally, that's totally true. So it's like the story is continuing without, the, without there being more books. So that's like the, I think that was one of the coolest things because it's like the story never ends because she's always there to either, characters, um, fans are always going to continue coming up with theories and she can always just either say yes, no, maybe so. And the universe expands from that. Brad, Melanie, Kathleen. Uh, So I completely agree with that. And she is a Twitter maven who is like, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just a voice of Twitter that needs to be like heard around the world. Um, plus, we should totally mention the fact that she's awesome because she gave away so much money. She's not a billionaire anymore. Um, but what I really wanted to bring up is beyond Harry Potter. So there's Pottermore and there's, you know, all of the theme parks and everything like that. But one of the things that I find really amazing is that she's actually been able to start up a new series that is not Harry Potter, but is so connected into the world that it feels like Harry Potter. And in fact, now what we're realizing is, is that Fantastic Beasts is a setup for Harry Potter. It's going to set up like everything that was going wrong, you know, that led up to where Harry Potter would then be. And that is beautiful because to be honest, I don't know if I want old Harry Potter yet. (laughs) Uh, In fact, I don't think I do. I know I don't want old Harry Potter yet. Um, But having the setup of the world where I get to now see Dumbledore and, you know, a bunch of these other characters uh, kind of emerging into who they will become in the Harry Potter books is brilliant and fascinating. And so far I'm in, so I'm there to watch. And Melanie, Kathleen, Fedora. I was thinking one of the things that I think this brings up again from a larger writing perspective is she knows all this about her world. It wasn't necessarily on the page, but then when it was developed, she knew enough about the world to know, hey, that that's actually is a part of the world. It just never got into the books or no, that's not where it goes. Like, hmm, hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that could be true. So I guess one of the keys of having a really well-developed world is having a really well-developed world and having it more developed even than what ends up on the page because it makes it much deeper and gives you room to go without contradicting yourself and you can maintain consistency that way. The well-developed mm-hmm. world and, and lore and history of the world yeah. and characters, all of all of the above. And it doesn't have to end up on the page for it mm-hmm. to be valuable. Yeah, but like if your movie is optioned and they're like, we want to give Dumbledore a tragic, like, tragic white backstory, you can be like... 
Nah, he's gay. He liked her to wall. Next. <laughs> he does have a tragic backstory. That's his tragic backstory. Exactly. One day you might get your own Silmarillion. <laughs> you might. Did you, Kathleen, were you still dovetailing or was that your dovetail? Oh, um, no, we can go on. Fedora, and then Fedora, if you don't mind, take us out to the end. It seems to me that the main thing that she does that I liked was surprise and delight around every corner, around every page is a new surprise, a new delight. It's as though she picked the impossible and somehow turned it, twisted it into magic, like a diagonally, whichever it is, whether you get there by flu powder or a brick in a wall, it's not possible to do those things. And yet, she twists it so that it is, and it's therefore a surprise and delight. And that's just one teeny tiny example of what she does thousands of times. And that's why I find it just amazing. And, and on that note, we hope that this episode helped the people who asked for it. Tune in next week for yet another interesting topic on, in the writing industry. Thank you for listening, and please share our episodes. Take care. The new theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.